in. Before we dive in, let me review really quickly where we have been. Um, who remembers what has been the setting, chapters 7 through 10 in John? It's all been going on during what time? Was that the feast? The feast of booze. The feast of booze, Sukkot, um, as Jews call it. And most of the time has taken place during the last day of the Feast of Booze. It's a significant chunk of time. Um, chapter 9 happened on that day. He heals a blind man. Chapter 10 is this discourse about he's the true shepherd, the good shepherd, come to um, call out his, his flock to himself. And, uh, and last week we actually wrapped up that section. I did it point it out to you. Look at verses 19 through 21. Um, this is sort of how the entire uh, section, the Feast of Booths, comes to an end uh, with mass division. So there's division again among the Jews. People said he has a demon. Others said uh, these are not the words of a demon. Who can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And um, comes to an end. In other words, this big section, Jesus just presented himself um, over and over again as Christ, and it ends in unbelief, division. Um, but it's division among unbelievers. Nobody is confessing him. But with that, now we come uh, to a new uh, to a new section. Um, so if that took place during the, the Feast of, of Booths, we come to uh, another feast. So, ask you another question. We said chapters 5 through 12 is, a, is another big section in John. What have we called that? It's the, the what cycle? The, remember? It's the festival cycle, right? So we have all these different Jewish festivals, Jewish feasts, feasts that are um, recurring in this, in this section here. And the point John is highlighting all through here is how Jesus fulfills the expectations of the Jewish feasts and all that they symbolized in the holy days. So chapter 5 was Sabbath. Chapter 6 was Passover. Chapter 7 through 10 is the Feast of Booths. Uh, 11 through 12 is going to be Passover again. Uh, but this morning we come to, to a different one, the Feast of Dedication. And if the Feast of Booths was just six months before Jesus' crucifixion, so it's coming very soon, six months away, now we leap forward another two months, right? So to a point just four months away before his crucifixion to the Feast of Dedication or the Feast of Hanukkah. Come to the Feast of Hanukkah. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> and at that time, the feast of dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter. So it's taking place in around mid-December, the same time it falls on, on your calendars. Hanukkah is also known as the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication. Um, it was not a feast that was prescribed in the Old Testament. So you can search all you want. You're not going to find the Feast of lights or dedication there. Um, it developed in the intertestamental period between the New and the Old Testament, that, that period of time there. You can read about it in First and Second Maccabees. Um, it celebrated the rededication of the temple after a really evil man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV. You remember Pastor Farrell taught about him. He was prophesied in Daniel. Um, First and second Maccabees, even Josephus, identifies him clearly as the one who fulfills what Daniel prophesied. This evil man killed many, many Jews at this time, made being a Jew um, illegal, 
having even a copy, a piece of the Torah, circumcising your son was a capital offense. Um, on top of all of that, he erected an altar to Zeus on top of the altar in the temple, defiled it, sacrificed pigs on it um, as an evil man. All this took place in 167 B.C. But then through the leadership of a priest known as Mattathias, along with his five sons, one of whom was named Judas, nicknamed Maccabeus, means the hammer. Um, he was quite a military leader. Um, so under their leadership, the Jews retook control of the temple, uh, drove the enemy out of the land. In 164 BC, on the 25th of the month of Kislev, be around our December, uh, the temple was finally cleansed and rededicated. And they celebrated a feast for eight days. And Josephus tells us this about the, uh, the event. He says, they made it a law for their posterity that they should keep a festival on account of the restoration of their temple worship for eight days. And from that time to this, we celebrate this festival and call it Lights. I suppose the reason was because this liberty beyond our hopes appeared to us, and that hence was the name given to that festival. So all of that is the background. This is the setting that our passage is going to take place this morning. Um, but what's interesting is, since this is not a, a festival that's prescribed in the Old Testament, John does actually not spend much time talking about how Jesus fulfills this festival. Because there was no promises attached to it. It's not prescribed in Scripture. Yet I think it is significant. John brings it up for a purpose um, here this morning. And I think it's this. I think while the Feast of Dedication looked back to the Maccabean revolts, to God's deliverance, it also certainly looked forward to his provision of the final Messiah, who would deliver his people, usher them into the kingdom, um, and finally, once for all, save, um, save his people. And just as Hanukkah celebrated the liberty beyond hopes, which appeared to the Jews, I think John is saying, so also Christ has come to bring a salvation for his people and to accomplish a work that far exceeds anything they or we could have ever hoped for. It's as if John is saying the glory of Hanukkah has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that has come to surpass it in Christ. So that's the background of this passage. It takes place at the Feast of Dedication. That's very important because Jesus is going to present himself as the glorious Messiah who's much more glorious than Judas the hammer. Um, so now look at verses 23 through 24, the sinister request of the Jews. <clears throat> and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Since Jesus is in the temple, he's probably there to celebrate um, this festival. He might be teaching. We're not, we're not told what he's doing. Um, he's in the portico or the colonnade of, of Solomon. A little picture here for you. Um, it's here on the eastern wall. Would have been a covered, covered walkway underneath. You could gather. Um, probably a place to be safe from the elements. It's winter. It's cold. Um, it's a place that people would congregate. So in Acts 3, this is where Peter gives his great uh, sermon. This is where Christ is. They're gathered in the, the portico of, of Solomon in the temple, 
But in verse 24, uh, the Jews, it says, it probably means the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees. The Jews come and encircle around Jesus. They gather around him. The idea is that they, they, they have come to Christ in order now to trap him. And not only do they want to trap him physically, they encircle him, he can't get away, but they want to trap him with their words. So look what they ask him again. So they circle around him and they, they say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now we know from the Pharisees, we know from the context of what has all happened and what is going to happen um, that this question is not being asked because they're just longing to know the identity of Christ so they can fall down and worship him, right? Um, it's a sinister request. Um, they're not asking uh, because they really want to know if he's Messiah or not. They want to force him to make some claim here on which they can accuse him and get rid of him. So just remember, two months earlier in chapter 9, the Pharisees had already agreed that if anyone should confess Christ, he's to be put out of the synagogue. So I don't think they've had a change in mind here. <laughs> I don't think they're thinking, okay, I really wonder if he's Christ or not. Um, another reason is during Hanukkah uh, would have been the prime place to get Jesus to utter a claim to be Messiah, right? Revolutionary spirits would have already been high. They would have been in the air. Everyone's looking forward to the final deliverance, wanting to be free from Rome. So if they can get Jesus to say he's Messiah, they can pinpoint him as an insurrectionist come to, to lead a revolt against, against Rome. So this is a prime place to, to confront him here. So that is their question. In the rest of the, the passage, we're going to get Christ's confident reply. His confident reply. And he begins by declaring the culpable unbelief of un. Believers. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. He begins by saying, I told you, and you do not believe. So Jesus answers their question, and he does not answer their question. He does not say outright, I am Messiah. In fact, he never outright says, I am Messiah. Well, why not? Why wouldn't he do that? Um, it's because Messiah, at that time, Christ, has so much political baggage attached to it. All of these unbiblical expectations for what the promised Messiah would do. Um, liberate them from their earthly enemies, Rome, overthrow them, inaugurate a physical kingdom only. Um, Christ was not interested in being that kind of a Messiah, that kind of deliverer. So he usually avoids identifying himself outright as, as Messiah. But he also doesn't deny it. Look what he says. He says, I told you. In other words, had they had ears to hear, they would know the answer to this question. Because Jesus has repeatedly made it clear in his ministry. In fact, just, just the previous three chapters at the Feast of Booths, 7, 8, 9, and 10, I guess it's four chapters. Um, if all we had was that, it would be crystal clear as to Jesus' identity. 
And he tells us that he has declared it in two ways, through his words and through his works. Look again. Jesus says, I told you, and you do not believe, it's his words, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Through his words and through his, his works. So really quickly, let's just stop here to, to consider how have Christ's words testified to the fact that he is the promised Messiah? Just think chapters 7 through 10, where we've been, the immediate context. Um, how should they have known this from his words? How should it have been obvious that he claimed to be Messiah? Can you think of anything he said? Okay, all the I am statements. Yep, so I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd, I am the door. Which are the four we've encountered so far? Yep. What else? He identified himself as the son of man to the mm-hmm. blind man. Yeah. Is that is that a connection to the Christ? That's well? a messianic title. Yep. And I think the Jews understood it to be Daniel 7, son of man. Yep. Very good. What else? I'm a little newer to the class, so I'm going out on a limb here. Yeah. Second time in a while. I haven't been going in a while. But... Uh, I, if I remember correctly, I believe shortly before this, he attributed himself the title Lord of the Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So um, chapter seven, he indicates that he fulfills Sabbath. The the, the very works that he's doing um, on the Sabbath reveal that he's not only God. That's the point he made in chapter five, but he is accomplishing the very thing Sabbath anticipated and pointed to. So, yep. Good. His, eternal, his, his, his eternal existence as well yeah. before Abraham was. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. That was a pretty bold statement. <laughs> it was. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are a number of things. Let me just list them for you, what, what I have there in your outline there. Um, he fulfills Sabbath. He is the provider of living water, the Holy Spirit. Um, he's the light of the world. He delivers people from death and slavery to sin. He claims to be the promised seed of Abraham. He claims to be the God of Abraham. I think, if anything, chapter 10, he claims to be the good, the true and good shepherd, the one shepherd of the flock. Remember, that's kingship language. Um, God's sheep come to shepherd them in the eschatological promise blessings of Ezekiel 34 to 37. Um, it's clear he's presenting himself as the Messiah. Was in a D.A. Carson. He says, Indeed, for those with eyes to see, so deft had been Jesus' self references, his use of the Old Testament, his handling of titles, his discussions of the relation between God and himself, that he has virtually pointed himself out as the Messiah. That's just his words. What about his works? How have his works declared that he. Uh, and he's the Messiah. I think there's a few. Look what our, our text says. Verse 25, he says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Not only do his words testify to his identity, but his works testify to his identity. He says, The works that I do in my Father's name. In other words, the manner in which he performs his works loudly proclaims who he is. We've seen this repeatedly in John. Jesus has not come in his own name, on his own authority. He's not a self-appointed Messiah. Um, 
so different from any upshot who just wants to make something of himself, some self-appointed person for his own glory. Let me show you three things that Jesus said back in chapter 5. Jesus did his works in submission and dependence on the Father, not from his own production. He did his works on the authority of the Father, not on his own self-appointed authority. And he just did his works for the glory of the Father, not for his own selfish glory. In other words, so full of humility, so full of unconcern for self-promotion was Christ that it testified that he had been sent by another. This is not how self-appointed people act. That's not all. It wasn't just the manner of his works, but also the spectacular nature of his works that loudly proclaimed um, who he is. Let me read you a couple passages here. Chapter 9, verse 32, is the man born blind. He said, never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Jesus said, chapter 15, If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. It means the sin of rejecting Messiah. But now that they have seen and hated both me and my Father. So the works, the signs in John, are not sufficient in themselves to create faith. Many people believe in Christ for the works, for the signs. It's insufficient faith. But nevertheless, the signs are, are important helps. They're meant to signal the reality that Christ is no mere man. Almighty God is at work in and through him. In fact, this is what Jesus says in chapter 14. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The, word, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In other words, his works loudly proclaim that God is at work through him. Number three, his works also demonstrate who he is by their symbolic prophecy-fulfilling nature. He does things that the prophets promised of the Messianic age. The sight, the, the blind receive their sight. The lame run like a deer. All these things um, were promised to symbolize the Messianic age. Jesus says that my signs reveal that that has begun in my coming. And yet, despite all of this, the religious leaders in the passage do not believe. Look, he says it twice. Verse 25, you do not believe. Verse 26, you do not believe. His identity is disbelieved by those who are not his sheep. And this is where Jesus now goes under the surface to give us the reason for their unbelief. Look what he says, verse 26, you do not believe. Why? Because, here's the reason, you are not from my sheep. You're not part of my flock. We've said this over and over. The sheep are the chosen gift of the Father to the Son. If there's any faith, it's because of this reality of the Father's gift of individuals to the Son and the Spirit's powerful working to give life and faith in submission to the Father and the Son. 
And without that work, Jesus says, nobody will believe. Before we go on to, to unpack this even more, I, I want to uh, say a few things here. First, notice that, that Jesus does, does not see a contradiction here between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. They are responsible to believe. And they're responsible for their unbelief. Jesus has just demonstrated that, right? He's given them reason after reason why they should have believed um, in the face of so much testimony of who he was. In other words, they have no excuse for their unbelief. God has given them all they need. The cause of their unbelief resides in themselves, in their depraved spiritual condition. So remember back in chapter 8, Jesus says, You do not believe because you are of the seed of who? Of the devil. You have the devil's DNA. You cannot believe. It's their own depraved hearts that hinders them. They are lovers of darkness and so cannot come to the light. John Calvin helpfully comments on, on this passage here. He says, if anyone murmur at this, arguing that the cause of unbelief dwells in God, okay? So he says, you cannot believe, you do not believe, because you're not my sheep. You're not chosen by the Father, given to the Son. If you argue the cause of unbelief dwells in God, because he alone has the power to make sheep, I reply, he is free from all blame, for it is only by their voluntary malice that men reject his grace. God does all that is necessary to induce them to believe, but who shall tame wild beasts? This will never be done till the Spirit of God change them into sheep. They who are wild will in vain attempt to throw on God the blame of their wildness, for it belongs to their own nature. In short, Christ means that it is not wonderful. It means astonishing. It's not astonishing if there are few who obey his gospel. Because all whom the Spirit of God does not subdue to the obedience of faith are wild and fierce beasts. In other words, the blame of all unbelief lies at the feet of depraved, truth-suppressing sinners. By saying this, Jesus in no way removes the guilt for unbelief by saying that they're not his sheep. In other words, he's, he's pointed them instead to what they desperately need if they are to believe, how much they desperately need God's grace if they're to believe. So Jesus doesn't see a contradiction between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Second, I think Jesus also says this here in order to undercut his their, their presumption, their pride. Why does he say this? You do not believe because you are not my sheep. Why does he say that? I think he's after undercutting their pride. They say if Jesus is Messiah, or if he thinks he is Messiah, at least we can frustrate his plans. At, we, at least we can thwart his mission by our unbelief. But Christ does not even let them have that ability. Right? They cannot hinder his mission by their own belief because they do not believe because they're not part of his special flock given him by the Father. It's a cut to their pride. And that's what these doctrines are meant to do. They're meant to cut down the pride of arrogant, sinful 
men. It's to humble us. Believer, to humble you, to humble me, and to humble unbelievers. We are so bad off that unless God does this for us, before, during, after salvation, the whole process, none of you will believe. It's a cut to your pride, and that's why these doctrines are not popular, even among believers. It undercuts everything that we think and feel. We're slaves of sin apart from it. It also cuts down the pride of man by insisting that Christ is in no way dependent on sinful men for the success of his mission. People can't dangle that over Christ. Well, at least we can thwart your mission. Jesus says, no, you can't. You don't belong to my flock. That's probably also a place of comfort for Christ. It'd also be a, a place of comfort for all of us who faithfully share and proclaim the gospel. The gospel cannot fail. Christ's mission cannot fail. In the face of mass rejection, mass opposition, Christ declares that no failure has taken place. They are not his sheep. It's meant to be an encouragement to us who labor and who see no fruit. Or the missionary in a hard area. You see very little fruit. It's meant to motivate you for faithfulness. His mission cannot be stopped by the unbelief of man. That's why he tells it to them. Just be faithful, brothers and sisters. Be faithful. Endure. Keep on. It cannot be hindered. So in verses 25 to 26, he rebukes and exposes the hard-hearted and culpable unbelief of the Jews. And yet his mission cannot be hindered by them. And so now he goes on to declare the certain salvation of the sheep. The certain salvation of the sheep. <clears throat> First, he gives us the response of the sheep, which is certain. Look at verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus says, in effect, it's clear that you're not my sheep because you're not believing. Why? Because my sheep always hear and always believe and always follow me. That's what sheep do. They hear and respond to their shepherd. Were they his sheep, they would be believing. Before we move on, I just want to stick a, a parenthesis in here to, to guard us against imbalance. This does not mean that sheep always immediately come to faith in Christ. Sometimes they appear very hard in their unbelief for a long time before they come to faith. Think of the Apostle Paul and a number of others in the scripture. Jesus is not talking about something instantaneous. He's not talking about something mechanical. I think everyone in this in this room has people that we're burdened for, we shared the gospel with. Hard, don't want it, push it away, don't believe it. This a wrong application of this text would be for you to slap a label on them, not sheep. That would be a misuse of this text. You don't know whether they are or whether they're not. The spirit gives life. He's like wind. You can't control it, you can't predict it. 
He blows where he wishes, when he wishes, how he wishes, and he gives life in his time. So don't get an oversimplistic view from this passage. Many of the Jews in the days of Christ did not believe until after his ascension. But the sheep will hear eventually. Those who do give evidence that they are his sheep. It's the only reason why any boy, the Spirit gives life to all of Christ's sheep, but when he, how he does that, is his own prerogative. And sometimes in God's sovereign purposes, he waits a long time and lets him go before he gives life. But when he's ready, he says no more. And he makes him live and believe. So don't give up hope. There's still hope. As long as they're breathing, there is still don't misuse these doctrines. So close parenthesis. So the response of his sheep is, is certain. Again, it's a comfort. It would have been a comfort for Christ. And it's a comfort for us as well. John Calvin again comments here. It is no small consolation to faithful teachers that though the greater part of the world do not listen to Christ, yet he has sheep whom he knows and by whom he is also known. Let them do their utmost to bring the whole world into the fold of Christ. But when they do not succeed according to their wish, let them be satisfied with this single consideration that they who are sheep will be gathered by their agency. My sheep hear my voice. They always do. Be encouraged. Be faithful. Continue on. Next, the salvation of the sheep is eternal. Look at verse 28. I give to them eternal life, and they will never perish. Eternal life is the gift Christ gives to his sheep. So what is eternal life? We've talked about this many times in John. Eternal life is first a quality of life. It is the life which characterizes the new creation. It is the forgiveness of every one of your sins. It is the transformation of your nature. Freedom from sin, able to know God, fellowship with God, hope for eternity with God. It's a quality of life. But it's also a quantity of life. Eternal implies that it is eternal. It does not end. He gives them eternal life. It begins now in this life. You have eternal life. You're not just going to get eternal life. It begins now and it spills over into the new creation which is coming. Jesus says he gives to them eternal life. And if it wasn't clear enough, he gives us the negative flip side. Look what he says. And they will never perish. The Greek couldn't be stronger. It's they will most certainly not perish into the ages. Um, never perish, his sheep. Christ's sheep, those souls given to him by the Father, not only certainly believe in Christ, but to them Christ also certainly gives them eternal life. And they will never perish. So believer, hear the comfort in this for you. You who are trusting Christ, true believer, clinging to Christ as your life. You're aware of your sin. You know your only hope is in him. You've embraced him as your Lord, your God, your Savior. 
You will never perish, ever. Not one of you, not one of his sheep will fail to believe in him, and not one of his sheep will he fail to give eternal life and save them from perishing. Not one. It's a glorious promise. But you might be thinking, well, Michael, that sounds good so long as I can maintain my hold of him. But what if I jump out? What if I let go? What if I cannot hold out on my profession that long? What if I should be overwhelmed by persecution or temptation? Or what if some external force comes along that's stronger than my faith and I reject him? I know the weakness of my faith. I know how frail I am. I know how quick to temptation I am. How do I know that I won't walk away and so perish? And it is true that there is a thing of apostasy. There is such a thing as false disciples. John of anywhere declares it to us. But where Jesus goes in this passage is to comfort true believers by telling them that he gives them eternal life and that is secure because it is ultimately not based on their grasp of Christ but on his grasp of them. Look at verse 28. He says, No one will snatch them out of my hand. You will hold me fast. Amen. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So the preservation of his sheep is unbreakable. He's not denying that true believers do and must persevere. They do. They must. There is personal responsibility here. We're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But you must do that by remembering the second half of that verse. What is it? For it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that is what Jesus tells us here. The eternal life of his sheep is secure because while they do believe and persevere in believing, their final salvation is dependent on him, not on them. He's come to give them eternal life, which not only includes the offer, but the securing of that life. And he tells them that it is dependent on the strength of the son's hand. It's dependent on the strength of the son's hand. No one will snatch them out of my hand. The sheep are as secure as Christ's hand is strong. The only way for a single one of these sheep to perish is for someone or something to wrench it out of the hand of Christ. He not only gives them eternal life by dying for them, but by holding them so that neither they nor anyone else should cause them to abandon Christ and so perish. He's taken it upon himself to see that every single one of these souls given to him by the Father will make it all the way home. If that were not enough, he gives us... it's fact that it's dependent on the strength of the Father's hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. The Father has given these sheep to the Son as a gift for his eternal glory and honor, as shepherd and redeemer. Do you know that about yourself? You are a gift of the Father to the Son. You live like that? Do you know that? 
You're part of his bride. And because the Father has done that, he is ultimately the one standing behind Christ's coming. He is ultimately the one standing behind Christ's promise and Christ's ability to preserve his bride. And the Father is greater than all. None greater. It says, in his, his hand that the sheep are held. And the only way for one of them to perish and not come to eternal life is if something greater than the Father should rip them out of his hand. Not even the devil and all of his demonic hordes can hinder the Father's ability to save even one of his sheep. Should a single soul perish for whom the Father is given to the Son, God would cease to be God. That's what he's saying. So believer, you'll never perish. Your very faith in Christ was the gift of God to you as a chosen sheep. And if he's done that, then know that it's also not up to you to keep yourself. You're as secure as the hands of the Son and the Father are strong. You most certainly will never perish, just as certain as the truth, as God is God. It's an unbreakable chain of sovereign grace. And if you're a sheep, these truths do not call you to passivity. Great, he's going to keep me. What does it matter? If you're a sheep, that's not how you respond. They're meant to call you to cling to him even tighter. To look to him to keep you in the love of Christ. We persevere not by looking to our own strength, but by depending on these promises of his. By casting ourselves on these promises of his to hold us fast. Look to him as author. Look to him as finisher of your faith as well. We're almost done. Look at verse 30. If that were not enough, he gives us more. It's dependent on the strength of Christ's relationship with the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Oh, there's so much we could say here. Let me just say this. The, the Greek is so precise. He doesn't use the masculine form. That would imply I and the Father are the same. We're identical. We're indistinguishable. We're one person. It's not what he says. That would be a contradiction to everything Christ has said in the Gospel of John. He obeys the Father. He submits to the Father. He responds to the Father. He loves the Father. They're distinguished in personhood. He uses the neuter. I and the Father are one. Not indicating personhood, but absolute unity. Perfect in union, harmony, oneness of purpose, power, and authority. Son always does what he does in response to the Father. And the Father always works all of his works through the Son. And only one who is God can claim such a thing. He claims to be one in the fact that he's united with the Father and that he's one in substance, in essence with the Father. Very God of very God. And that's why the Jews hate him. They're about to stone him for saying that, so we'll see next week. But let me just say this here. Why does he bring that up? Why does he say, I and the Father are one here? It's because it's the final foundation of the certainty of the salvation of his sheep. Their eternal life is not just as secure as the hand of Christ is strong. It's not just as secure as the hand of the Father is strong. But the truth that even one of Christ's sheep will never perish is just as strong as the union of the Trinity is strong. You will never perish until the Trinity can be broken. The Son is devoted to the Father's purposes by saving the sheep. The Father is devoted to the Son for his success and mission and so devoted 
is the spirit to their purposes, that the very oneness serves the unbreakable guarantee that Christ's sheep will be saved. John Calvin, one, one more time, said, Ere they perish, God must be overcome, who has taken them under the protection of his hand. So Christ is not just a Messiah. He's the Messiah. Much greater than Judas Maccabeus ever was. It's clear. His testimony. Those who reject him do so because not a sheep. They need grace. And if you believe, it's because God showered grace on you. He chose to do that. From eternity past, he gave you as a gift to his son. And if he's done that, then you know he will keep you, take you all the way home. So many implications we could flesh out. We have out of time. Any questions, comments on that? Uh, it's a it's a great passage to share with uh, those as many folks who believe you could lose your salvation, yeah. and uh, this is so clear. And, uh, yep, and they can see the assuredness in our life because they're so uncertain. Yep. You know. yep. And they come to that conclusion because they've they've denied the, these doctrines of, of sovereign grace. Of God is not sovereign on the front half. He ain't gonna do it on the back half. It is. So um, a simple way to describe the Trinity. The Father um, is the initiator. He's the head. He's the authority. He's the one that plans. The Son accomplishes. And the Spirit applies. Um, they're all always working in concert with one another. Um, so how does Christ do this work? Practically speaking, he does it through his Spirit, who works through the Word of Christ, right? Giving life and regeneration and sustaining the faith and producing fruit. So we're going to come to John 15. Uh, talks about the vine and the branches. The sap of Christ is in your life. As you abide in him, and it's working in you. What, what's that sap? It's his word. It's his spirit. It's his life. So, yeah, absolutely. All right, guys. We need to go get seats. Let me pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Use it. Produce fruit in it in our lives this week. In Jesus' name. Amen.